0: Okay, well, let me take the glasses off so that I can't see what I can't see. I wrote back on August the 6th because I have a medical uh, procedure on the 17th of August. I also have a, uh, a doctor's appointment on the 7th of August. I think I can make this. We'll find out today if I can make the 6th. We'll all know by the end of this one whether or not I'm able to keep going. July the 23rd, 2023, lecture discussion number 199. Am I right about that? Oh, wow. How about that? On the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 15. And I feel like MacArthur a little bit. I have returned. I'm not at full capacity. Um, I begin every day with this gastric cocktail that I have to take. And that's something that's going to continue until January 9th, 2024. And then after that, it's likely going to extend past that and it's going to be on an as-needed basis. And the, and the problem with all of that, of course, is that uh, uh, the drugs impact me. They take away a great deal of my capabilities and I'm operating on 40% capacity here, I think, probably. And I just said, I, 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 let me repeat this. I'm going to be hospitalized on August 17th uh, for an endoscopy and a colonoscopy. And the purpose of that is to evaluate uh, whether or not there's any healing of the uh, duodenal ulcers. Notice I said ulcers. I have multiple ulcers in the duodenum. And I'm on drugs that are supposed to repair that. And hopefully the repairs have occurred. And some, I do feel like they have because I have some control of my stomach pain. But it's the headaches and the nausea that I'm struggling with. So needless to say, the pharmaceutical process has been strenuous. That's the difficulty, is is that aspect of it. The antibiotics, the sucrophates, the proton pump inhibitors, the pain management drugs, those things are brutal. Absolutely brutal. And it turns out that I have little tolerance for almost every pharmacological remedy known to chemistry. I am the king of side effects. I get them all. Uh, Headaches, nausea, dizziness, full body rash, constipation. And all of that uh, caused me to reconsider the cliffside aphorism. Uh, Replacing, uh, were you weird before you came to cliffside or did cliffside make you weird? Gotta replace that now with, were you on morphine before you came to cliffside or did cliffside put you on morphine? When I was in the emergency room, I'm screaming. And there's nothing that can help me. There's nothing. They tried everything they could. And finally they said, let's give him morphine. And they had to give me two doses. And that was the only effective countermeasure was morphine. Now you understand why I chose morphine for our new slogan. Because it works. Did we put you on it or were you here on it already? It doesn't matter. It works. Supper Dave has suggested that we, end every lecture with a call-in contest, which I think is a great idea. And name that drug. Yeah, he wanted to say, uh, which opiate is the HTRP on today? And, the uh, first caller wins a lifetime supply of Book of Joel lectures. You gotta buy your own t-shirt, but, you know, you didn't have one. Okay. Enough of that. We begin today with the usual question that I have to ask all the time. And really now, because we've been gone, I was telling Dave and Terry that uh, I got sick. I was sick on April 6th. And I've been sick every day since. I haven't missed a day. some kind of infirmity. So I'm not really sure. It's been 90 days of absence. A truancy, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, That has impacted my continuity. My ability to remember what I did is one of the things that is dysfunctional right now. And yes, I'm aware that no one would ever say what I've done has any continuity. I'm all over the place. I've never been high on the list. Discursive is not compatible with continuity. So so what are we going to do today? Well, we're going to do what we always do, pinky. I've had three months to compile questions. Three months, that's a lot. Uh, almost three months. And so how many questions do you suppose that I've collated? Uh, the over-under is about 300. But I first uh, I thought, okay, it's going to be best to emphasize a few things as they are relevant to where we have been. And we've been mostly lately in the Calvinistic superdeterminist determinist position and the Arminian, Ar- Arminian tenet that salvation is fragile and it's transitory. And it's insecure. And so I want to kind of have a restart today since the vehicle has not run for since April 6th. Uh, a, disc, a restart of sorts, I guess, is what I call it. Notice a disclaimer of sorts. It's not really going to be a restart. Actually, it's going to be a continuation, but it's going to sound like a restart. It's going to sound like I'm rever- I'm going back over material. But I hope you recognize that I added things in that I have up to this heretofore been Setting aside purposely. It is my view. Let me say this as strongly as I can. It is my view. That we need to begin. That one. That people. That Christians. Should begin with the immortality of animals. You begin there. And some of you might find that surprising. To put it another way. One. Which will certainly anger a swath of religious practitioners. When I say this. And especially those who are aggressively advocates for atheistic evolutionary absolute determinism or predestination. They don't like this, what I'm going to say. It's been my experience that if you are wrong on the immortality of animals, if you got that wrong, are willfully illiterate, then you will cascade into annihilationism. That's what you're going to do. And that's a place you never want to go. Is anti-biblical. It's against God's character. and utter, unmitigated predestinationing. Note the verb predestinationing. It actually is a verb. I didn't make it up. To reword that a bit, for those who may not be so percipient as to my intentionality, if you're wrong on the immortal living souls of animals, their endowment of the breath of the spirit of life, if you're wrong on this then you're wrong on almost everything else. You're a basket case. Because you're beginning with a misguided, mistaken analysis of the person of the character of God. You're anti-Psalm 36, 5-7. If you find yourself anti-36, 5-7 of Psalms, then sit down. Say, okay, I'm wrong here. I've looked at Psalm 36, 5-7. Those are the characteristics. Loving kindness, mercy, judgment that is deep. It's not surface judgment. It's incredibly deep judgment. It's justice. It's righteousness. Now, I have at least... How many hours uh, do I have on the lectures of Immortality of Animals? What would you guess? 15 hours? I got at least 15 hours. And I believe all are on the internet. I, I could have easily continued for another 100 hours. But for today, I want to reemphasize this. The crucial importance of why God Christ intends to resurrect all the animals in whom he has breathed the breath of the spirit of life. That needs to be known. He's going to do that. You can't stop him. And again, obviously, Psalm 36, 5 through 7, Psalm 37, 4, Revelation 7:17. 7, overwhelm those who mock the immortality of animals. I have run into quite a few. The more I do it, the more mocking I get in return. No time allotted today to to go to review all of those passages. But just to get, again, I'm restarting. God is the God of deep justice and judgment and loving kindness and mercy. And he will give to those who desire him the desires of their heart. He will wipe away every tear, every tear. He will wipe away. And I'm bringing this set to the forefront because one, I think, belongs in the fore- forefront. But I'm bringing it to the forefront in this particular arena because I have yet to p- locate a prominent absolutist predestination in Calvinist who understands the implications of the immortality of animals. And I've listened to all of them; all of them fine. In fact, those who address this issue, and I saw a question and answer: a man at a podium and a man, a man in the audience, say. We just lost our dog. Well, we see our dog in heaven. And I saw the man on the podium. He addressed that issue and they they are adamant. He's representative. They're adamant. They're derisive. They're arrogant. They're narcissistic. They dismiss all animals as having equality with rocks. They really do. They say it. Look them up. They proudly proclaim that animals are worthless, they're disposable. Again, this justifies cruelty. That's why Elijah D. Buckner wrote what he wrote, The Immortality of Animals in the early 1900s. He saw the cruelty. And they're against... Again, this justifies cruelty and it also leads them into annihilationism because they believe that animals are annihilated. You can never open that door. Doctrinally, it's just not there. There's no such door. And both concepts—animals uh, as worthless and disposable and, and, and annihilated—both of those concepts are godless. They are not god-fearing, and they are not honoring God in any way. This past uh, week or so, uh, I—I got—I uh, saw uh, Sharon from Texas and Jennifer from Arizona. They both experienced the, the passing of their beloved dogs. Both of them, Sharon wept, and I'm sure Jennifer did likewise. He will dry every tear, remember? And I'm sure they, they wept many tears. Those dogs unconditionally loved Sharon and Jennifer and their family. Allow me to repeat that. Unconditionally loved, loved is what they did. They brought joy. They touched the lives of Sharon and Jennifer. And there is a man on the Internet who gleefully and mockingly likes to refer to animals as the same level as a rock. How is it possible for a rock to love a human being? Who can be so stupid as to equate a loving animal with a rock? And that would be the absolutionist, the absolutist predestination in Calvinist that does that. Do all Calvinists do that? Do all of them proclaim that? That all animals are to be annihilated from existence? No. Not all of them do it. Most of them won't. They'll just shut up. But they all believe it. Predestinationism will take you into annihilationism. And And again, that is a horrible, misguided place. And the ranks of the Calvinists, to be... Fair. There's no ubiquity here in Calvinism. There's people that call themselves one-point point, one Calvinists, and two-point Calvinists. I'm talking about the absolutists. I'm talking about the predestination element of it, the, the super-determinism element of it. But the overwhelming teaching of hyper-Calvinism is to equate animals with plants and rocks. They will say, if you have a rock garden, your rocks are not going to heaven. And if you have a, plant, a garden, your plants are not going to, get to heaven and neither are your animals. Get over it. The only thing I, th- I saw, and I'm going to deviate here for a second, the only thing I saw that was worse than that, to say that to somebody who just lost an animal, that they loved, that loved them, that's begging for hope, to do that is is just wicked and wrong. Cannot be defended. It's unmerciful. The only thing that's worse than that is I went to... i got to think about when, when I was made aware of it. A young man in, in, a, in the Catholic Church committed suicide and the priest at his funeral said that he went to hell. And they do that all the time. So there's this relationship between hyper-Calvinism and Catholicism that you can't ignore. They, in fact, the Calvinist background comes from Augustine. And they know that. The Catholics were the first to declare predestination hundreds of years before John Calvin. And note the, this dismissiveness of animals is consistent with that of the abortion movement of Margaret Sanger. We were all taught when we were young that it was just a blob. It wasn't a human being, right? And anything you could do, you could kill and manipulate it. You can harvest it. You can do whatever you want. And the Chinese government does that to the Uyghurs, and the Nazis, of course, did that to the Jews. You diminish the breath of the spirit of life. So that gives you a license to do whatever you want. Now, I understand Genesis 9. I know what God has done here. I'll get to that at some point. You have to know why he did it. It's a lot more complicated than you think, than most people think. And so, might I suggest that when you have company that are cheering your view, that are the the Chinese government and the Nazis and the abortion industry, then that should slow you down, give you pause as to whether or not you are on the right path. You are on the opposite path. So I suggest that the company you keep uh, that cheers your view is not good news for you. Okay. That's just stuff that made me mad for the last 60, 70 days. And it's Dave's fault if he, if he exists because he said, once you look up these guys on the internet, I said, okay, I'm not doing anything. I'll look some of them up as long as I can. And I found horrifying things. That's just a small amount. I flip this thing. Why did I do that? That was fun. I enjoyed doing that. Can I do it left-handed? Things. Flipping things that I have that I never even noticed before. I could flip them all day. I could get a drum going. I could squeak the floor and flip my percussion system. Right now, Lori is throwing things at at her phone. Okay, where am I going? I still really don't know. Job 1, Job 2 is about where we left off. That's the lie of Satan. That's the motives of Satan. There are hundreds of questions about Satan in Job 1, Job 2. And Job 1, Job 2 answers many of these questions about Satan. Not only just those that are relative to Job 1 and 2, but all over the Bible. So it becomes very important and I think incredibly interesting. And you might remember that Job 1, 6 describes the day... When the sons of God, the angels of God, all of them, came to present themselves before the Lord. All of them did. And Satan was among them, it says. Satan is among them. I'm thinking of an amphitheater, but of course there are millions and millions of them. There might be billions of them. We don't know how many angels there are. There could be many, many uh, tens of thousands at minimum and billions in, in all likelihood. And the Lord God... Ask Satan a question. and That's a very important place to begin because when God asks you a question and he's omniscient, he's outside of time, he obviously knows the answer. And so he says to Satan, from where did you come? And what's interesting is Satan receives the question and pretends that the question that God doesn't know or he doesn't know that God doesn't know. Either one of those can be possible. And immediately don't think that's a benign question because God does not have benign questions and He doesn't ask simple questions either. He asks very complex questions. So here's the first easy question about the really hard question. Did Satan anticipate this question? Did he think he was going to be asked this question? Did he, he's a smart guy, right? He's a, he's a cunning, he's the most cunning there ever has been. Did he anticipate that God would ask him, from where have you come? That would mean that he would know that God is Omnipresent. Does he know that? Does Satan think that he can do things in secrecy? That's ultimately the question. Did Satan prepare himself then to be spoken to by the Lord God Almighty? Did When he showed up at the, at the meeting with all the other angels, did he expect that he would be spoken to? Did God speak to any other angels or did he speak to just Satan? All of the angels have assembled. One-third are with Satan, Revelation 12.4. One-third. He's got One-third. On the day that Satan rebelled, the day of the fall of Satan, the day of the day that iniquity was found in Satan—that's Ezekiel twenty-eight, fifteen. Had Satan calculated his path? Had he prepared himself for what was going to come? On that day, how complex was his was his flowchart, for lack of a better term? How much had he thought ahead? I've, I've We equated this to a, ch- a chess match. How many moves ahead has he thought? What's he capable of? We have computers now that are that can think hundreds of moves ahead. Human beings can't even come close. They get slaughtered. The very best, Magnus Carlsen, cannot beat Stockfish. No hope. So that's that's Satan and God in a sense. How far ahead of of uh, how far ahead did Satan have the capacity to, to think, and how far did he think? Did Satan, at the time of this assembly, when God asked him that question, did Satan believe that God was omnipresent? Did he believe that God was outside of time? Did he have any of those ideas in his head? I would say to you that he's the most cunning, and he certainly considered it. Did he believe it? Did he act as if it was the case? Remember Henri Bergson. He said, of course, and he's absolutely right, that time is attached to free will. Free will and time. Not time and space. That's the monistic, superdeterminist physics community. That's the that's the predestinational position. It is time and space. That's what they insist. But Bergson was was right and is right, and Einstein is wrong. It's time and free will. Anyway, I had to hammer that in again, trying to restart everything, get you back to where we were, so that I can go forward. Back to the subject. I am prone to wander about. Have you noticed? I could just, my mind thinks differently sometimes. And I'm sure some of you are laughing now. As you've come to expect, that's the case. Especially in my current state. Holy macro, honey child. I'm a mess. It's it's amazing what's going on inside my body right now. The Satan, okay, is among the one-third. Did he expect, when he's up there with the one-third, he's got one-third. So I asked all this, I asked this question many, many times, many years ago. Did he expect that he would only deceive one third? Is he happy with his one third? I got one third. What did he expect? When he he was calculating what he was going to do, when iniquity was found in him, what was his expectation? He knew he was going to do something profound, but had he had he figured out how everything worked? And of course, he could not have because he's going up against an infinite, omniscient being, Creator. To rephrase the question: How many angels did Satan foresee that he would devour, that would join him? How many did he believe he would get to, to, to join him? Well, I would agree with you. I, I think that one third to Satan was failure. But we'll get into that in a minute. Jud. Jud. Jude 9 adds commentary. Michael was assigned to hide the body of Moses. Why? We're going to have to deal with this. This was brought up by a couple of ladies in California a long time ago. Here we finally get to it because we're at Job. Michael was assigned to hide the body of Moses. And Satan and his forces were marshaled against Michael and Michael's faithful angels that were with him. Michael's not by himself. He's not, he's not there just getting the body by himself. He knows Satan is coming to the body. So how does he know that and why does he know that? He knows why Satan is coming for the body of Moses, and he, because he's assigned the job of hiding it. Now, that isn't that interesting. God is going to hide something. God hides things. He hides Himself. He says He's in a secret place. And and so, Satan and his forces again were marshaled against Michael and the, and the faithful angels. So I have this. I have this assembly of angels again. So where am I in the Bible right now? I'm in Job. Job 1. Job. Job 1. Job 1, 1.6. Jude 9. They're clearly directly connected to this body of Moses. That takes me back to Deuteronomy. Where only Moses saw the face of God up to that, at that point. Anyway, note that Michael at that at Jude 9... He dared not bring against Satan a reviling accusation. He didn't challenge Satan at all. So what is it that he would have challenged Satan over? He didn't bring a reviling accusation. He didn't call him a liar. Why didn't he call him a liar? Did Michael know that Satan was lying? If he knew Satan was lying, why didn't he bring the accusation of liar against him? You're a liar. He didn't. Didn't dare to do it. Why not? So Satan's got his little group. Not little group. he got one third. He probably got a billion. Matt Michael, who knows how many he's got. He's got two billion. And, and, and Michael says, I'm not going to talk to you. God is the only one that can talk to you. Only God can do this. I can't do it. In other words, Michael, the archangel, likely the most powerful of the faithful angels. Notice how I say that. He dared not to accuse Satan of a lie. Instead, Michael implies that only God can contest Satan. He can Only God can rebuke Satan. Only God can prove that Satan is a lie. He's the only one. Only God can do it. I can't do it. Let me repeat that part in case it slipped by. The implication is that only God can do this. Only God can accuse Satan. Only God can prove Satan's lie is a lie. Did Satan know that going in? Michael is not able to defeat Satan. Ezekiel 28.12 Satan's lie is a compelling, potent thought. Concept. It is not simple. So why did God hide the body of Moses? Obviously, the Creator could have constructed a different body for Moses, right? He's got a dead body here. We'll make a new body. He could have done that. But he doesn't do that. We, the saved, will receive a changed, non-corrupted body in an instant. 1 Corinthians 16:50 50 through 58. We're going to get a new body, a changed body in an instant. He could have done that with Moses. He didn't. He hides the body of Moses. Satan comes for it. Michael says, "I can't argue with you. I can't can't defeat your premise." And obviously, or more obviously, God intends to resurrect all the bodies that have His breath of the Spirit of life. Genesis 7:15, Genesis 7:22. If you have the breath of the Spirit of life of God, your body will be resurrected. That is just a fundamental truth of the Bible. If you don't know it, then you're going to go whoosh into the ditch. That's what will happen. I've seen it over and over and over again. Did Satan believe he could interfere with the resurrection process? That was how I jumped to that. Keep in the forefront. Resurrection is outside of time. And you should say, what, right now you should say, what are you talking about? What are you saying here, HTRP person? The twinkling of an eye can be measured, you're going to tell me, by accomplished scientific measuring people, you're going to say. They have decided how fast the twinkling of an eye is and they have decided that it is a billionth of a second. That's what they say. I want to know. I want to see the meter that that measured the twinkling of the eye. They can't measure it. It's not measurable. I'm saying that it's not measurable because it's outside of time. Resurrection is outside of time. And you're going to say, why would we take the side of a morphine, ulcerative, pharmaceutical, disoriented, old person on the verge of cognitive decrepitude? That's what you're going to say. And I'm going to say, is pharmaceutical a verb? It is now. It has become a verb. And it shall be forever so. Order the T-shirt now. Beware the pharmaceutical. Anyway, it's my opinion that God, having authority over time, he will resurrect without time, without the movement of time. It's not a twinkling of an eye. Time didn't move. It happened so quickly that time did not move. And Paul knows this. Why does God resurrect at what I'm going to call infinite speed? Obviously, he's sending a message to somebody. He's resurrecting at infinite speed. We can't even imagine the concept, but that's what he's going to do. Now, why is he doing that? Why didn't he go really slow? You've seen all the movies. People go up slowly. Blah, blah, blah. They talk to each other while they're there. Talk some more. Blah, 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 blah. As they're traveling to the third heaven, right? To the secret place where God is and the holy of in the heaven. Lots of time. No time. I can't, I can't even replicate infinite time. So he's sending a message. who's he sending it to? Obviously I answered that question in the question, even while pharmaceutical pharmaceutical. that's amazing. I can't say pharmaceutical three times in a row, but I can be pharmaceutical. The point is, yay, finally a point. Satan was unable, to draw, to devour the entirety of the angelic realm. He only devoured one-third. That's all he got. Was he surprised? Was he angry? Or was he pleased with himself? Did it reach his expectations? Did it come in consistency with his calculations? That's not a bird, I hope. He only devoured one-third. That's an important piece of information. And you have to begin to start asking the questions about why only one-third or why one-third? Who's in the one-third? And which response would reveal the flaw of Satan's lie? Which response invalidates the premise of Satan? Again, Michael the archangel is unwilling to confront Satan. Can we reasonably then conclude that none of the faithful angels dared to speak to Satan at all? So not just Michael, but none of them. So he gets one third that join him. How many does he have impacted by it? If they can't, won't, if Michael won't talk to him about it, won't, won't accuse him of a lie, then what about the ones that follow underneath Michael? There's a hierarchy in heaven, in the angelic realm. Michael won't fight him. We ain't fighting him. If you decide that this is correct, what's going to be the resultant here? Which of the possibilities are traceable to the cause? Are they afraid of Satan? I doubt fear. I don't think fear is there. I doubt fear is the issue. These are immortal spirit beings. Why then this hesitancy? This, eventually Michael rises up, Daniel 12.1, Revelation 12.7. Satan did not prevail in the war of heaven, Revelation 12.8. Obvious question. What's the obvious question? He fights Michael at one point. Finally, Michael gets in there and fights. And who who wins? Michael wins. Now, you've got to comport that. You've got to You look at Michael's unwillingness to confront Satan in Jude 9. But by Revelation 12, he's ready to go. So what caused that? Satan did not prevail in the war of heaven, Revelation 12.8. Obvious question. Again, why not? What has changed? Something has changed. What has changed between Jude 9 and, and Revelation Michael and his army cast Satan out of heaven. A more obvious question. Who attacked and who defended? If you align yourself with the position that Satan attacked, that's the Satan attack position is what we will call that, therefore Michael and his two-third forces, they defended and they defeated Satan and they defeated his one-third forces. Now it's imperative that you also begin to formulate your answer to the immediate why. Why did Mar- Michael attack if he attacked? If you've got Satan attacking, you've got to come up with why did Satan attack. If you've got Michael attacking Satan, you've got to come up with why did Michael attack? And I'm going to tell you that they all fit together. How was Satan impacted by Michael fighting him for the first time? The first time Satan is it was was in a position where he could be kicked around. He lost, as a matter of fact here. He lost the angels. And what's he do? When he lost the angel war, what's he do? He decides that he's going to kill the Jews. He's going to bring great wrath because he knew his time is short. How did he know his time is short? Did he know how much time he had? He obviously knows time is important. How does he know? Somehow his lie is rendered impotent because Michael attacks him or defends against him and prevails. And now I want you to note the Job connection here. Satan is an attacker primarily. That's what he does. God allows him to attack. So we go back to Job 1.6 and Job 2. How did Michael and why did Michael and his angels vanquish and crush the satanic demons. How did that happen? To repeat, something has changed here. We can see the change. Between Michael at Jude 9, I'm repeating it because it's invaluable information. Michael at Jude 9, and Michael at 12.7 Revelation. Something is intermediate there, and we need to know what it is. Michael not only accused Satan there at 12.7, he fought him. He, he, he knocked him out. He beat him to the ground. He vanquished him from heaven, threw him out of heaven down to earth where now he goes after the Jews. Again, you see the Job issue. What happened? Did God intervene? I get that a lot. Well, God helped Michael win. Well, how much help does God need? he needs billions of angels to defeat Satan, he does not. He's infinite. So if he intervenes at all, it's no no longer a fight at all. It's just a ceremony. It's a facade. So if you think that he stood apart, if he didn't interfere, you have to say, you know, why not? And I gave you some hints right there. I for that. So, if Satan is the one that attacks, why did he attack at the time he did in Revelation 12? What emergency, again, what event is traceable to this war? Satan mobilized himself. He's got one-third against two-thirds. Did he think he was going to win? I think he thought he was going to win. I will submit that, uh, that the cause, though, is something really significant. Something really significant happened and Satan said, we got to hit, we've got to attack. So what do you think it was? Well, I'm going to say that it's resurrection outside of time. Infinite speed resurrection. As soon as he saw that, he said, I've got to fight. The timeless resurrecting. And if I'm right, we'll wait for the lone holdout to say, okay. And something about resurrection being at the speed of infinity is devastating to Satan's construction of his lie, because I have a whole bunch of angels that don't want to rebuke him, don't want to accuse him, don't want to say anything to him, act like they're almost afraid of him, they're absolutely hesitant, and then all of a sudden they they rise up and they destroy him, they beat him to death almost. Those are euphemisms, but they beat the crap out of him. Can I say crap? Okay. They knock him out of heaven and they throw him down to the ground like like a piece of garbage. Makes him mad. Now, how did they get that kind of capability? Did God all of a sudden tell them how it's a lie? Did he intervene? He did not do it. They came to it on their own cognitive capability. So what is it that made them think this way? We should endeavor to persevere and attempt to argue, or I'm sorry, attempt to arrive, not argue, we might argue. We need to arrive at an answer as to the implication of all these things that might have happened in that war. How long did the war last? Most people think, well, uh, 15 seconds. Did it go on for days? Did it go on for weeks? Did it go on for months? Did it go on for a year? How long did it go? I got huge armies up there. They're fighting. How do angels fight? I had a guy guy had a a great answer to that. He said, "Well, with their fists." Well, yeah, they probably do. They got swords and chariots and horses. They they fight. Now, how do spiritual beings get into a physical war? Because that's how it's described. You threw him to the ground. Somebody knocked him out. If you want to think a heavyweight fight, you you got a knockout here. How did that happen? I, Michael, again, I keep repeating because it's so critical. Dared not rebuke him. Wouldn't call him a liar. Certainly wouldn't get in a fistfight with him. But there Revelation 12. No problem, baby. So that's, that's interesting to me. Easy question how fast is infinite speed? Is infinite speed inviolable? Can anything go faster than infinite speed? Of course it cannot. It's inviolable. And so I'm going to compare infinite speed with uh, the speed of photon particle-based light. I got a letter from a guy that said, I I like the fact that you take these kind of subjects on. And I appreciate that because I I do like the fact that I like the fact that I do put these things on. I'm kind of entranced by them. A particle-based light is not inviolable. How far away, I might have asked this already, is the secret place of the Father who's in the secret place, Matthew 6.6? we're going to get from here to the secret place. How fast does it happen? Infinite speed. At no time passes. He does it outside of time. And so there's a very big clue for you. Does Satan recognize that it happened outside of time? Is there some kind of experience that Satan has where he says that happened outside of time. Did God reveal that he's outside of time? We're flawed human beings. Some of us, uh, like me, are pharmaceutical. You might have heard that already. But we uh, have been willing to accept, and especially me because I did a lot of classwork in uh, electrical physics, we, we, we accept the fact, the concept that photon-based light produces what we call a light year. Right? The distance that light travels in a year, essentially. And we give it validity. We say light years has validity. Well, one, we need to know the exact speed of light. We really don't know. We, light might have a spectrum of speeds. Kurt Rinshaw. Ezekiel 1.14 speaks of the living creatures, the cherubim who move. He can't even describe how they move. Flash. Flash like lightning. That's all he's got. They're moving really fast. And they come from the heaven to the earth all the time. They escort the dead. How fast do they do it? How many cherubim left their heavenly estate? Because the cherubim are the highest of all of the angels, the seraphim and the cherubim. Jude 6, Genesis 6. How many left their heavenly estate? And how many did Satan get? Did he get a third of all the cherubim? Who's more powerful, do you suppose, the cherubim or the seraphim, Isaiah seraphim, Isaiah 6, 2 through 3 and Isaiah 6, 7, or the regular old angel? Michael's got regular guys. Satan's got one third of the cherubim and the seraphim. Who's more powerful? If one third of the angelic realm chose Satan, again, those are all of the commanders. Those are the leadership. He's got a third of the leadership. So which resurrection occurs that panics Satan and forces him to attack? Which one? Because he's not going to upset the apple cart if he doesn't have to, right? But he thinks that he's got to fight and he thinks he's going to win. So he attacks and Michael defends. That's my position. You can have the alternate position, but come prepared to defend it. How long is infinite speed year? I got an infinite speed year. How long is that year? Well, obviously, I can't time that, right? I got infinite speed. I'm trying to figure out how fast infinite speed goes and how far it travels in infinite, when it's in infinite speed. So time doesn't move. Again, I, I, I answer the question in the. This is a stupid question. And yes, there are stupid questions. Who made God is a stupid question. It's probably the preeminent stupid question. Uh, As you know, can God make a rock that he can't lift? That's almost as stupid as who made God. Henry Bergson, time and free will. That's the key here. Time and free will. I believe I asked the question long ago, or lectures ago, not sure. How much free will will there be in the infinite city of New Jerusalem, Revelation 21? How much free will is going to be in that city, the new city of Jerusalem from above? That is, 1,500 miles high. Actually, it's infinite. How much? How many people are going to be in there? How many angels are going to be in there? How many animals are going to be in there? The Bible tells us that it's filled to the brim almost, except it can't be because it's infinite. The new city of Jerusalem is eternal. So I'm asking, how much free will is going to be in an infinite, eternal city? How much I got? Do I have a finite number of free will pieces? Yes, I do, because I have finite creatures. I have animals, I have humans, I have angels. We're finite. So how much free will are all those billions of individuals going to do? How much free will do you do in an hour? me, I'm pharmaceutical. So my free will has been diminished significantly. Somehow, resurrection and free will are interlaced by God. He's put them together because He's introduced infinite speed or motionless time, whatever you want to call it. And how, so we have all that resurrecting that's going to occur. Where there is time, there is free will. Is there time in the new city of Jerusalem? Yes, there is. There's months. There's time there. So I know I got free will there. The hyper-Calvinist view is that there's no free will at all. So I'm going to ask this question. Will we have free will in the eternal state? The hyper-Calvinist, I almost call him communist. the hyper-Calvinist has to say if there's no free will here, there's no free will there. So there's your no free will existence for eternity. You have no free will for all of eternity. Again, it is illogical and it is not biblical. Okay, now on to the difficult section of the lecture. We got all the easy stuff out of the way. We start with an intentionally wrongly worded question. Which of all of the Bible passages look at the time now, which of all of the Bible passages that include references to Satan is the most significant? So of all the Bible passages that talk about Satan, which one is the most significant? Give me a chance here, allow me to list the possibilities. You can feel free to fall into my trap now at any juncture. Can angels repent? Yes or no? Eve testified that Satan lied. How many angels testified that Satan lied? Eve said he lied. He's a liar. How did she know that? Who explained the lie of Satan to Eve? She experienced something, but who else experienced something? Who else was not deceived? Adam was not deceived by Satan. So he had the capacity, I will submit, to explain to her how the lie is a lie. And of course, now she had the experience. But what's important about her is she pointed to Satan during the trial of Satan in Genesis 3 and said, in their own trial, he's a liar. I want to know if... Angels had the ability to repent. Did any angels repent? Or when Satan got the one third, that same one third has always been the same one third. It's never changed. There's no fluidity. There aren't any angels who say, "Wait a minute, he's a liar. I don't know why he's a liar. I don't know how he's a liar, but I'm, I'm repenting. I'm going back." Did any angels return Allah e? Because she said he's a liar, and I don't want. To, I, I'm going back. And she's called the mother of all living, right? So she's rewarded for that. Can Satan repent? Does he have the capacity for repentance? Mankind can repent. And God wants mankind. He seeks for mankind to repent. Acts 2.38-39, Acts 3.19. Why does God ask us to repent? And I've talked about what he wants us to repent from. Mostly it's unbelief. Repent from your if you repent from your unbelief, you got a shot. You're gonna to start to change. The Holy Spirit will change you. If you got unbelief, that's a different story. The Holy Spirit does not change you until you believe. Uh, I know that's something that we get into regeneration and monergism and all these other ridiculous arguments. But for today, let's just go. Does Genesis three fourteen imply? That Satan will not repent, because God says there in three fourteen of Genesis, you're cursed above all things. All cherubim, all seraphim, all animals, all human beings—you're you're the most cursed being that has ever been created. Do the do the fallen angels will they repent? Revelation nine, second Peter two 4, 1 Peter three nineteen. Looks like they won't. Why won't they repent? Do they have, Now the Calvinists would say they don't have the capacity to repent, right? Satan has no capacity to repent. He has no capacity. He doesn't have any free will. Nobody's got any free will. It's real easy to say there's, a, there's no difference between you and a rock because that's what they've said. The rock has no free will. You have no free will. You're a rock. That's how they get their rock and their plant. God will allow them to not Repent. Again, we're at back to Acts. He will give them over to their wickedness. Romans 126, 128, Revelation 14, 9-10. Raise your hands if you've chosen Genesis 3.14 as the most imperative verse that addresses Satan. Never raise your hands here. Never. What Are you, are you crazy? Are you pharmaceutical? Don't raise your hands here. It's ill-advised. Okay, moving along maybe. If you are wary of Genesis 3.14 with respect to preeminence in the Revelation in relation to the other passages that addresses Satan, perhaps you prefer Job 1 and Job 2, which is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Where God permits Satan to strike Zo- Job. Sob. Where God pre- permits Satan to strike Job while the entire assembly of the angelic host witnessed Job's reaction. That's what's going on. Can't be denied. The text is obvious. Remember Job 1:22. In all of this Job did not sin nor did Job charge God with wrong. Job took a beating, a hellacious beating, and he did not charge God with wrong and he did not sin with his lips. And how long did it go on? How long did he endure that? A couple of hours? Don't be silly. By this, I am referring to Satan's assailment on Job. Another reminder, Job 2.6, there are two phases of Satan's destruction. He has two waves, if you wish to maintain the military analogy. He has two comings. He has two advents. Two comings of Satan. Of course, there's two comings of Satan. I submit that uh, at minimum, it took days, if not weeks. The logistics are quite complex, i got to get the Sabaeans involved. i got to get the Chaldeans involved. i got to convince them what to do. i got to manipulate them. I got, there's a lot of organization here. Satan needs to accumulate biological agents. He's got to weaponize those biological agents. He's got to arrange for Job to be infected by those biological agents. Thank you. I'm speeding along here. Job 115, 117, Job 2, 7, Revelation 16, 2. So at Revelation 16, 2, what does God do to the mark of Satan? He makes, turns it into a boiling sore. What happened to Job? Boiling sore. So you've got to you consider Revelation 16 too when you're looking at Job. All the while, the whole of the angelic realm, the fallen and the faithful, they're watching Job on display. Similar to the execution of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 4.9. So 1 Corinthians 4.9 is a great mystery. I believe 1 Corinthians 4.9 is crucial here. You figure out 1 Corinthians 4.9 why God put the apostles' death on display and he did the same thing with Job. Why did he do it? And the whole, all the angels saw it. So what's the reason? What, what would be your reason for doing it? If you were doing it, let's play, take a human perspective. If you were doing this, what are you trying to do? you got a, you got a jury, don't you? You're trying to convince the jury of something. Is God trying to convince the jury of something? No, he doesn't have to convince them. He just has to show them. Why does he show them? Because it's a trial. For I think that God has displayed us, Paul writes, the apostles last as men condemned to death for we have been made a spectacle to the world both to the angels and to men. Why? Why? This is a rut row. Job 1, Job 2, and 1 Corinthians 4, 9 are like this. They're tied together. What about Revelation 24? Then I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, the Word of God. So raise your hand if you cling to the Job 1, Job 2, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, Revelation 24 through 6. All very cryptic, all very secretive as the predominant Satan passages. Never raise your hands here. Door number 3 is a Satan Judas door, okay? Oh my gosh! John thirteen two, John thirteen twenty six, John six seventy, Luke six thirteen through sixteen, Matthew twenty six forty seven. It's a behold, behold. Matthew twenty six forty nine through fifty. Zechariah eleven thirteen. That's where. That's the throwing of the silver. That's Second Samuel twenty four. That's the three choices of David. The atonement price, the silver, that's the Exodus 30, the silver, Matthew 26, 14 through 16, Jeremiah 32, 9. Blood and silver are connected. And and, and Satan attacked David, First Chronicles 21, 1. So that, that brings that into Job, right? Hope you follow that. I got Psalm 41, 9 for the Satan-Judas door. I got John 13, 18, 27, 5 through 8 of Matthew. Acts one twenty-five. Acts one sixteen through 20. John 13, 2, Luke 2247 47 through 48, John 17.15, Luke 1, 35. Revelation 6, 1 through 2, Revelation 13, 1, Matthew 26, 14 through 16. That's a lot of information about Satan and Judas. Now, I've addressed the mystery of Judas, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 9, the eighth mystery, the evil thing, many times, too many to count. Can't do it today, but unfortunately, Judas, Satan's Genesis 3.15, is unknown in the church. It's unknown. They don't even know it. You will find, they all, they all say, well, Judas was misguided. He was remorseful. He was not. The church of our time has no idea the significance of Christ choosing Judas Iscariot to be an apostle. Did he know who Judas was? He absolutely knew who he was. He chose him on purpose because he's a purpose kind of God. John 6:70. Christ is definitive. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? It's not a devil, the devil. It's the definitive word. The holy thing is Christ chose the evil thing, Luke one thirty-five, John 17.15. The God man chose the Satan man. Did he know what he was doing? Please stop. The facts of Scripture alone should bring a dead stop to everyone who speaks about Judas and Satan because you've got to tread cautiously here. This is an incredible mystery. It's impossible to figure it all out. The seed of the woman choosing the seed of the serpent. Genesis three fifteen is here, to be an apostle. And yes, it's Job one six. Of course, it's one six. He puts Satan right in. He he puts someone that is deeply and intricately attached to Satan into his apostles. Did Judas know it? Did he know why? Allow me for those who have not heard my Judas lectures. Judas did not have the capacity to betray Christ. Jesus is an infinite omniscient. He is the infinite omniscient God. He's the Aleph Tab. Revelation 1.8. He holds time in his hands. It is impossible for a created finite being. In this case, a Satan man. Though he assumes the throne at some point and declares himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2.3-4. Still, he's a finite, limited, inside of time being. So, Satan enters his son. That's what he does. Satan enters the son, his son, probably at Revelation 13:1 when he calls him out of the abyss, and Revelation 13:4 for sure, and John 13:27 obviously, and Luke 22:3. Judas is the only one ever in history ever described as having Satan inside of him ever. So chew on that if you don't have that figured out by now. Anyway, Satan Judas cannot betray Christ is the point. Yea, a point. The word that's always translated betray he's called the betrayer. He's not a betrayer. He can't betray Christ. It's impossible. The best rendering is deliver. Satan Judas is the deliverer of Christ. That's what he is. Failing to understand that is going to lead to catastrophic doctrinal failure. And, and, and Satan Judas did not have remorse. The word is not remorse. It's regret. They're trying to circumvent a situation. Why does the God of creation intend for Satan and Judas to be allowed, Acts 14, 16, to deliver him, to be crucified? He says, I want somebody to deliver me to be crucified, and I'm picking Satan, Satan's Judas. That's what he did. It almost looks like a wedding. He wants to be escorted down the, the aisle by and Judas. What's he doing? And... And of course, again, Judas and Satan attempt to abort the crucifixion. That's why they threw the temple potter money. That's what they're trying to do. They got to stop the crucifixion. They caught on fast because he didn't kill everybody in the garden. Uh oh, he just knocked them down, and he went with them. He allowed himself to be crucified. We have a problem, Houston. So grab the money, throw it at the temple potter. Let's stop this crucifixion. He's an innocent man. I've got to give you. An in- got to stop that. Pharisees are so stupid. They don't know. They don't know. Who's on whose eye? So obviously, door number three is a formidable choice. But as you should now know, you should be expecting all of this. All of the doors of the scriptures, they have doors. Because they've got fractals. Flat door toruses. Flat door tori, I guess would be more appropriate. All verses are infinite. None are superior. They're all equal. That's how he does it. That's how he wrote his Bible. Let's evaluate the meeting of Christ, Abraham, and Satan in Genesis 14, 18 through 24, which, as you know, that's, that, what happens out of that is the Ab- Abrahamic covenant comes into effect in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is another 15 lectures, as you know. But, but let the, nobody wants to return there, but we have to. Satan, Christ, and Abraham, that's astonishing. That's Abraham, what did he do to cause Genesis 15? He did something. He chose something. What did he choose? He chose the people. And because he chooses the people, this incredible Genesis 15 comes out. As you might remember, the everlasting, unconditional Abrahamic covenant, the free covenant, is revealed by God when Abraham chose the people. As you might remember, I, I subscribe to the Melchizedek as Jesus Christ position, Hebrews 7.3. So obviously, Satan in Genesis 14 is incredible. Something happened. Okay I'll, keep... okay. okay, I'll speed along, trying to. Genesis 14.9 records the death of the king of Satan. I'm sorry, king of Sodom, which then connects to Revelation 13.3 and 4. Because I have the death of the Satan man of, uh, in Acts 1.18 and Matthew 27.5, the hanging death of the son of Satan. So I see this relationship between the death of the king of Sodom and then he somehow shows up alive. And then of course we know the antichrist is mortally wounded and comes back alive. Notice the struggle over people at Genesis 14 is the same theme as Revelation 7 Revelation 23 20 verse 3. Why do we have this contestation this deceiving this struggling do I need to stop? Okay. And how does predestination fit into all of this contesting and this deceiving? It doesn't. Why is why is satan deceiving people if they can't be deceived because they're predestined why is he trying to devour people because they he's trying to devour them because he knows they can be devoured they can't be devoured if they're predestined the bible tells us that satan must be released it is necessary it is essential it's vital why does satan need to be released what does he do once he's released well he does what he always does pinky he devours mankind and angels and why is this urgent? It's urgent, it's vital, it's unavoidable. The Bible says it's necessary that he is allowed to do this again. Why not leave him in prison? That's not an option because God is omniscient. It's not an option. He must be released. He must be in prison for a thousand years and he must be released. We, we need to know why that's so. Obviously, it has a relationship to Genesis 14 and Job 1. Who are the wicked ones? The Bible talks about wicked ones. Revelation 21, 7-10 seems very familiar because it's Satan's last rebellion. Final war. We've seen wars before. We saw one in Revelation 12. We saw one in Genesis 6. Looks like it's all happening again. It keeps happening over and over and over again. For example, who organized the sons of God to seize the daughters of men in Genesis 6? Who said, I have an idea. Let's go down and attack these daughters of men. Now, they are beautiful women down there. Obviously, they're real close to the time of Eve and Adam. But who organized them? Did they just all arbitrarily do it on their own? It looks like a good idea. Let's all go together. Or do they have leadership? So who organized the sons of God to seize the daughters of men? And the Nephilim were spawned because of that. Who had the ability to pervert the biology and begin to produce the Nephilim? Consider the intelligence required for that. So who is described as intelligent enough to cause Genesis 6? As full of intelligence, Ezekiel 28.12. Does Genesis 6 relate to Revelation 22 through 3? Revelation 27, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released and will go out and deceive the nations. Here we go again. To gather them together for battle, whose whose number is as the sand of the sea. This is the second Gog and Magog. The first Gog and Magog is Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now the immediate question then is how many are not deceived? He has a number that are deceived that number like the sand on the beach. How many did he he not deceive? I want to know the relationship between the not deceived and the deceived. Is it the same relationship mathematically? Is it two-thirds, one-third? Just asking. Are there any undeceived? Absolutely, there are undeceived people. Adam proved it. Satan does not deceive everyone. There is always the undeceived. Elijah thought he was alone, didn't he? But there were 7,000 servants of God in Israel who did not bow the knee to Baal, and have not kissed him. Oh my gosh! There's your clue. Is what was Judas doing? You came to deliver me with a kiss, Judas. Seven thousand who did not bow the knee to Baal and have not kissed him, First King nineteen eighteen. For those of you who are screaming at me, Matthew twenty six forty nine and Luke twenty two forty seven. Congratulations. I hope you got it before I told you. That's in pa- pa- la la la. That's fantastic information. 7,000 undeceived whose mouths have not kissed Belial, 2 Corinthians 6.15. Belial is Satan. 7,000 that didn't kiss Satan. The Satan man delivers the God man with a kiss, as you know. That is explained in 1 Kings 19.18. We need to know why it's done. What about Revelation 20:10 through 15? Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire, where the Satan man and the false high priest prophet were thrown. The obvious question is, why was Satan not thrown in the lake of fire with the Satan man and the lying high priest of Revelation 19:20? He gets a thousand years, where he's not in the lake of fire. They go, they go immediately, boom boom. He doesn't go with them. What's the answer to that? I'll give you one answer. Because Satan has to be what? It's imperative. It's, it's unavoidable. It's absolutely necessary that something happened to Satan. What is it? He must be what? Released. Nobody gets out of the lake of fire. But he's got to be released. A thousand years from release. Got to happen. Do we have another one-third, two-thirds? This time it's mankind. Does he deceive one-third of mankind? The final battle of Satan. The second Megagog. Note that at Revelation twenty, eleven through fifteen, the sea gives up the dead who were in it. And these were these were judged according to their works. That's what it says. Now who are all of these people that are buried by the sea? Come on, we can do this. A whole bunch of people. How many do you think I got? The sea gave up his dead. How many? How did they die in the sea? Fall overboard? Sea wrecks? Or shipwrecks? Storm? How did they die in the sea? Genesis seven nine through twelve. I submit that the sea of Revelation twenty, eleven through fifteen is the fountains of the great deep, Genesis seven eleven. Not to be confused with and the rain, Genesis seven twelve. I got the fountains of the deep and I've got rain. Therefore the judge according to the works in Revelation at the Great White Throne. Those are the wicked ones who had whose every intent of the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually, Genesis six five. God grieved over them. But he had to take them out. Because every thought was evil continually. Every thought. There was never a thought that wasn't evil. That's how bad it was. Now, who organized that? Who could have done that? Got every single one of them to be evil continually. Every single one to reject Christ. Okay? All flesh was perverted and corrupted, the animals were corrupted. Everything. Okay. Hopefully that was a good restarting. I I decided to end with this. I talked to This is really the thief on the cross and the bronze snake. You hold up the bronze snake. All you got to do is look at it. Even if you're blind, you just got to look in the right direction. You just got to See? So, there's this new, and nothing is new, little adage out there now, that is said to replace O-S-A-S, once saved, always saved. Joel 2.32, John 5.12, John 6.37-40. My favorite is John 10.28. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my infinite hand. I added infinite. How big is his hand? It is infinite. So I feel quite legitimately adding infinite. Salvation cannot be stolen or lost. John 6.37-40. Anyway, they've come up with a replacement with once saved, always saved. They say this. I don't even know what to say. Obviously, I have something to say. I say this. If saved, always saved. Okay, well, is that a true statement? Well, yeah. If you're saved, you're going to be always saved. But what does it imply? It implies if. If saved. I'm I'm going to cover this. I consider this to be problematic. Uh, I apply the Christ test. I always say to myself, would Christ say, would he say, once saved, always saved? Would he say that? You ran into him and you said, once saved, always saved? Would he say, yeah, once saved, always saved? Yeah, I think so he would. Because he's in the salvation business. And he's in the eternity business and no one can snatch you out of his hand. And so he knows once you're saved in my hand, it's an infinite hand, you're always saved. How about, would he ever say this? If I saved you, you're always saved. Would he say that? There's a refusal here, isn't there? Would he refuse anybody that calls his name? Joel 2.32? He won't refuse. So... I don't like it. I like the people that are doing it. I understand that they're conceding something, and I understand the pressure. But I don't like if. I win once, uh, but not if. Just saying, it's just me. Send me your nasty letters.